This is The Lat with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today, we're talking about Pig, the Nicolas Cage film that just came out this year. Helen, kick us off. Well, <laughs> uh, if you are interested in a longer form discussion of what I'm about to say, then I did a two-part um, seminar on this with GCAS last year, which I'm sure you can find somewhere online or sign up to GCAS website or something, because I won't get through everything. So <laughs> this is a lot of the stuff I've been thinking about for a long time, inspired by Todd McGowan, uh, God McGowan, Todd McGowan. So um, humans are divided subjects, as we all know, or as we say a lot in the lag. Um, we seek wholeness and completeness because of the trauma of experiencing co the contradiction that generates everything at the level of our own subjectivity. Um, the ideology of promise, which capitalism hitches a ride on, tells us that there are objects, places, people, ideas that if we can capture them, will transcendentally transform us, smooth over the contradiction that exists within us and fill up the lack that we experience. So the lack, this is based on the fact that we are, um, we go through a second birth, we are born once too early, we go through a second birth when we're separated from our mothers. And this lack, this experience of a separation of a lack is something that we consciously experience because of the second birth. This is where language is generated and subjectivity. But it's traumatic because it tells us that we are born of contradiction, that the only thing that really is, is something that isn't at the same time. So capitalism and ideology, essentially, in the, in the, the way I understand it, is that which tells us that contradiction can be overcome or doesn't exist but it can never be overcome. We can only ever transform contradiction into opposition. It transforms into something else, something bad. Capitalism doesn't work because we can never fill this gap of lack. And so it must go on and on and on and on and on towards Hegel's bad infinite. But if we accept the lack, we're in Hegelian terms within the good infinite. And this is why um, we need to read Marx with Freud. Freud was a Hegelian, understanding our libidinal investment in the lost object. And that really to overcome capitalism, perhaps, we don't know what uh, the owl of Minerva flies at a dusk, or dawn of dusk. Um, yes, so we don't know what is on the other side of this, but this is an insight that lots of people have. Interesting people. <laughs> anyway, film, I think, is a philosophical medium unlike any other art form because it inherently. Um, I don't use the word reflect because it's a tricky word in terms of film theory, but it, it, I was just going to say it mirrors again, don't want to use that word, but it, it, it um, says something about human subjectivity and this human subjectivity beyond things that fall within the categories of the real, the imaginary and the symbolic, you know, things like identity or what have you that we can really grasp onto as essential things that we believe if we can just capture and understand, we can overcome the gap of life, but we can't. You know, contradiction underpins everything. So the one thing we share, despite who we are, despite our where we come from, is 
this inherent lack contradiction that generates our subjectivity. So it is a universal thing. So film is a universal medium because it gets at this. It allows us to have a confrontation with the gaze. The gaze, some of the listeners will know, I did a, I think I did a three-hour podcast <laughs> um, presenting an alternative understanding to gaze than that which has dominated film theory since the 1970s. The male gaze, quote unquote, because gaze, in my opinion, is much more the universalist question, transcending, uh, you know, things such as gender. It, it touches on what it is to be a speaking subject. So the gaze is lack staring back at you, sort of always the abyss staring back at you. It's you witnessing something where your own lack is reflected back at you. Film theory has been dogged by a misunderstanding, a misunderstanding of specifically Lacan, um, as it was interpreted by certain um, theorists in the 70s. And this is really a liberal understanding, capitalist understanding, in my opinion, gendered understanding. And it's basically film is like the mirror phase. So film is about, there is an element of this, you know, film, a lot of people are interested in film because it, within society, it's that which sort of, there's sort of this object A, we desire it, we don't know why, but there's this object A within it. But it's not, and so there is this idea of, you know, we, we watch these screen figures and we um, like children during the mirror phase, Lacan's mirror phase, we work out who we are in relation to these people. But it's, this is a very reductive understanding. And so then we have this whole thing of like gender representation as the only issue in film, or, um, you know, we want to have, uh, you know, that, that men who uh, want to see these women on screen only depict them in a certain way, et cetera, et cetera. And while there may be an element of truth to this, I think this is not the Lacanian insight. The Lacanian insight is to do with the gaze of lack, the universal gaze. So film is a universal medium in so many different ways, you know, made by many people, we watch it collectively, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The broadcast nature of it on a material level, but it's on the subjective level that I think the universal is most interesting. So film, and this is, I actually think American movies have the potential to be the most philosophical. Even more, I mean, I'm a, I love world cinema. I grew up on European film, but there is something about the, riven form of Hollywood cinema that captures us by desire, leads us by desire. So the sort of overwrought in every dimension from the music showing us how to, um, pointing to how we should think, the, um, the use of genre, which have, have these sort of like um, collective understandings of what we can expect and what have you. Um, everything from, you know, production value to movie stars, all of these things. And these, these are things that often we're sort of kind of castigated as sort of like, oh, this is bad. Um, this is patriarchal or whatever. But I think the sort of patriarchal oppositional understanding of capitalism is capitalistic itself because it is turning the contradiction, the universal contradiction, into an opposition that then you can replace one, one opponent with another. And the opponent, as we've said many times, sustains the utopian logic of capitalism. Behind the opponent is a utopia that you can get of wholeness and completeness, a capitalism beyond antagonism that is cast by the shadow of their existence. But there is no capitalism without antagonism. Capitalism is antagonism, is generated by antagonism. 
So, and we can we can defeat the logic of capitalism by understanding this. So, this sort of American American style film, perhaps, although this is done, you know, we we see people like Audriard in in France that uses the same sort of narrative, river narrative, and has a different flavor to it, perhaps a French flavor, a more interesting flavor in many ways. But we 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 have this river narrative form that leads us by desire, you know conflict, we enter into this conflictual narrative, a lacking individual goes after a specific goal. And the, the narrative drives us, leads us by our own desire because we libidinally invest in this lacking subject that we identify with. And we sort of, um, the veil of, um, what do you call it? Damn, I can't remember the phrase. Illusion. Damn, can't remember it. But we, 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 we are brought in, we, we forget that this, um, we forget this insight of universalism and we invest and we believe that there is going to be something at the end of the film where um, a totality is reached, that someone's going to achieve a goal or what have you. But And so film, I think, presents this sort of pathway to undercut that um, belief in a really, really interesting way, in a way that we are so invested and then it, we, the veil is torn. Wizard of Oz does this and the veil is literally torn at the end. You know, there is no undivided other, there is no all-knowing wizard. And actually, if you look at Hollywood films of the um, early and mid 20th century, this insight is there often and we have forgotten it in these sort of trashy, uh, more kind of capitalistic films um, of recent years. So Pig, and I don't know if Pig does it deliberately. I think actually it was intended to be quite a quiet, reflective film. And I think that maybe a wider currents and wider sort of transferences that happen with, with sort of the viewership on um, the figures in the film and the tone of the film um, enter into this transferential relationship. So this is what we're talking about transference, right? And this is a very Hegelian idea. I was talking to a friend earlier about um, being doing sports as a young person. And capitalism, the sort of capitalist ideology tells us that we get tough by training or we win by training harder than everybody else and just committing harder and just giving it our all and being the best. Whereas really the philosophical insight of sport, I think, that actually makes you quote unquote mentally tough is that you put yourself up just as the viewer who invests in these stories and gives themselves over to the illusion, like the analysand in psychoanalysis, who in order, you can't intellectualize the cure, essentially. Reason does, reason is helpful, but also as divided subjects, we have a con, you know, we have an, uh, an unconscious part of ourselves. And so we can enact a reasonable understanding through this um, sort of harnessing of something else within us. And in order to come to understand the psychoanalytic insight, the, the cure, we have to experience it at the level of our sort of, of affect. So the analyst and the psychoanalyst relationship, we transfer, we enact transference upon the psychoanalyst, believing that they are the undivided other that's going to cure us, save us, give us the insight. And then we're sort of gradually let down and we come to understand that everyone's divided. So the sports person, the, you know, you, you put yourself up for competition every week, believing, remembering, forgetting, remembering, forgetting, remembering, forgetting, and coming to understand that basically, you know, you believe that, oh, a sports competition is fair. There's rules. One person wins, the better party wins. No, 
The reality principle always gets in the way. It's terribly unfair. You get injured, the weather's bad, you get ill, your car breaks down, you don't make it on time. You know, the, the, the undercutting is always there. And so I think the mental toughness aspect of doing sports is not learning about how to be disciplined, what have you. And, and I think this is an insight that any from Olympic athletes to children playing games can come to understand that life is not fair, quote unquote, there's no fairness in the universe. And if it was fair or balanced, if there was some cosmic balance, it wouldn't even exist. We are born of the big band, we're born of contradiction. So in terms of pig, because Nicolas Cage, I think, you know, we transfer onto the figure of uh, Nicolas Cage, we believe he's some kind of action figure. And so we come to it with this belief that this is going to be some kind of like thriller, crime thriller film. The film itself does sort of set this up, you know, the, the early 15 minutes with very little dialogue and lots of sort of um, genre tropes um, get us to invest into this, this belief that this is going to be some kind of crazy. Wah, 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 wah. And we come to understand. And I, as I say, I think this does it slightly differently from other films like Wizard of Oz, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that this person doesn't want that or that there is no, actually I won't give, up, give away the ending, but there's no thing that we believe that there is at the end of the film. So I think film, because of the very nature of it, is a philosophical medium and it operates as psychoanalysis does at the level of affect, a riven overwrought um, art form that allows us to have these insights. And so therefore I think it can be, a, it is not political in its representational quality, but in its psychoanalytic quality. And I'm not talking about, you know, theories of the male gaze. I'm talking about actual Lacan's writings, gaze of the universal. Maybe I didn't get it all in there. Um, so feel free to check GCAS out as well. <laughs> all right, Nina, you're up. Okay. Um, yeah, it was interesting to, to watch this film. It's very slow and elegaic and, and beautiful. And I, I've seen uh, not all of Nicolas Cage's films. That would probably be physically impossible. But I, I have seen some of them. And I, I, it reminded me most of Mandy, I suppose, which is this kind of psychedelic horror film, uh, which is very different in many ways, which is much more violent and much more kind of um, scary, really, and, and very trippy and um but it's also it is similar in the sense that cage is this kind of lone figure looking for somebody or or something and and uh, but also in a way dealing well in in the case of mandy looking for the the killers um in this kind of revenge movie uh, and in this one it's slightly more complicated what is being um sought um and I think the the film is implicitly, uh, amongst other things, a kind of celebration of of the analog. Um, it reminded me a little bit of the Unabomber manifesto in some sense. He's he's a kind of decivilized man, or a, he he's a kind of um, hermit. Um, he he is, uses older forms of technology for a battery powered cassette player, for example. Um, and his concerns are primarily non-digital. His relationship, even when he's in the city, is to to an image of the real. Um, he, when he's in the the forest, he's in touch with nature, and it's clear that he has an understanding of how 
the forest works in relation to the truffles and the pig is a is a truffle pig um but also when he when he goes to the city uh where he appears like some kind of homeless terence stamp figure from theorem uh sort of puncturing people's image of themselves um as a sort of like you know a jesus of of loss really um he also engages in forms of physical violence in in the basement in the like the unconscious of the city in a way to remind civilization that it is never free of the the threat or the reality of the violence both of nature but also of the founding violence of civilization the 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 kind of act that must be covered over um in order for civilization to to even exist for there to be beautiful restaurants for there to be you know fancy shops and and a, an illusion or a, an image of civilization and 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 in a way as as this kind of homeless terence stamp figure this kind of jesus of lost loss he's 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 sort of destroying people's civilized image of themselves and reminding them often very abruptly and quickly of a kind of truth or an honesty um that they once possessed or a or a reality that he can invoke through his skills as a as a chef or through his encounter with a, a sort of fight club in a basement and that that scene is a bit a bit confusing uh, to me i think the film is originally supposed to be slightly longer um in any case so you know you you have a strong sense of this you know and actually i hadn't realized how big nicolas cage is <laughs> he he's a sort of very um huge figure in this i mean not least because he's kind of covered in bloods and hair and nature and and he never changes his his outfit even when he goes to visit fancy places you know at various points you sort of want to scream like take the blood off your face you know like it's just sort of astonishing that he's allowed into these places but this is somehow also part of the interesting um it, you know it's a realistic it's a realistic film but it has these slightly unbelievable elements you know slightly tension these elements of of tension um in terms of how he is able to move i suppose through the city um with with help from this this character who's a very interesting character ultimately who's a kind of properly city slicker type with a fancy car um but but you know through the homeless terence stamp it provokes the truth of a kind of oedipal uh nightmare at this at the heart of the of the film and I, I think it's 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 a very sweet and and sort of poignant film it's it's interesting that the the pig um which apparently in actual real life uh, attacked nicolas cage repeatedly uh, and bit him and uh, <laughs> he said it was you know one of the most um you know, <laughs> scary film experiences he ever had it was being bitten by this untrained pig um <laughs> but actually the the pig is very is very sweet but the interesting thing about the pig is is not actually that it's useful and and it's meaning for the the, the rob nicholas cage figure is is not its use it's not the reduction of the animal to its purpose and and they eat meat in the film right so this is not a film that's pro vegetarianism it's not a film that's about animal rights it's about i think a very the and not just the relationship with the pig but all of the other relationships and all of the women in this film um or m- many of them many of the key women in this film including the pig are dead or lost or somewhere in between and 
the I think this what the analog aspect of this film points to is is something like the singular relation. So the singular relation between the Rob character and the pig is on the side of the good rather than the useful because it is singular, right? And and that all of these sort of meaningful relationships, like uh, the the one also with Rob and his 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 wife, um, that you that you infer obviously from his um, memories, analog memories, and also you know the, it's it's a theme in the in the film. Um, is is that it's the specificity and, and singularity and specificity are not quite the same thing, in fact, but I'm going to use them slightly interchangeably. Um and there's so so there's something about this. It doesn't matter how many fancy restaurants or what fancy car you have, it's much more to do with the with the analogue, um, which is never eradicated um in the city, I suppose. Um and I thought it was it was a very nicely balanced film. I mean, it's a simple film in some ways. Um, and it reminded me also of that ghost film, I suppose, we watched, the one I can't remember the name of, but it had a ghost in it. Or yeah, ghost it. story. Ghost story. Um, you know, and I think there's a kind of almost like, I want to use the word bespoke, but people hate this word uh, for good reason. But, it, you know, it, there's something of a slight... Um, homemade feeling <laughs> about it and this kind of uh, idea of of DIY and and cooking for oneself and how these real things are what is ultimately important and meaningful because of their singular quality all right i'm up in pig nicolas cage plays a chef who was once regarded as the greatest chef in all of Portland. Fifteen years ago, Cage's wife died, and he turned away from cooking. He retreated into the forest where he hunts for truffles with his beloved truffle pig. He trades the truffles to his partner, a young man named Amir, in exchange for essentials. One day the pig is stolen, and so Cage must journey back into the city to find it. Amir travels with him. Cage and Amir have three encounters in Portland. In the first, Cage meets with an old acquaintance, Edgar, to ask him for help finding the pig. Edgar refuses to help. He tells Cage that his name once meant something in Portland, but that now he does not exist. Edgar is the voice of the social system Cage left behind. While Cage was a chef, the city was at his feet, but he left, and now it doesn't care whether he lives or dies. To obtain Edgar's help, Cage participates in an underground fighting ring for restaurant workers. He allows one of the workers to beat him within an inch of his life. He does not resist. He does not defend himself. Moved by this display, Edgar tells Cage to go to Eurydice, a trendy luxury restaurant. There, Cage meets Eurydice's head chef, Derek. Derek worked for Cage for two months in the old days, but Cage fired him for habitually overcooking pasta. Derek tells Cage he can't return the pig. Truffles are a key part of the winter menu. They need to be top of the line. To obtain Derek's help, Cage reminds him of his values. You see, Derek once dreamed of opening a traditional English pub. He's running a trendy restaurant because it's popular and because it makes good money. An English pub is a poor investment by comparison. Cage says to him, Derek, 
Why do you care about these people? They don't care about you, none of them. They don't even know you because you haven't shown them. Every day you wake up and there will be less of you. You live your life for them and they don't even see you. You don't even see yourself. We don't get a lot of things to really care about. Derek, where is my pig? It turns out that Amir's father, Darius, took the pig. Both Amir and Darius are in the business of supplying Portland's restaurants with terrific locally sourced ingredients. The competition for ingredients is fierce. Amir told his father that he had found an incredible truffle pig. He never imagined Darius would send thugs to take the pig for himself. But some years ago, Darius lost his wife. Cage reacted to loss by retreating into the woods. Darius reacted to loss by becoming ruthlessly materialistic to the point where he would even betray his own son. Cage goes to see Darius. Darius refuses to return the pig. He tells Cage he will have $25,000 sent to Cage's campground. If he sees Cage again, he will chop the pig into bacon. Cage tells Amir to gather a list of things. As it turns out, Darius and his wife had the most memorable meal of their marriage at Cage's restaurant more than 15 years ago. Cage sends Amir out to gather all the ingredients necessary to recreate that meal. They serve Darius the very same meal he had enjoyed with his wife. Darius is reduced to tears. He admits that the thugs who abducted the pig were too rough, that the pig died in transit. Cage weeps, and soon after that, the film ends. Pig is not a perfect film, but it is the best film I have seen. I love the moment when Cage confronts Derek. In Aristotelian terms, Derek has become a vulgar craftsman. He cooks based on what sells, on what's popular. He ignores his own understanding of good cooking. Cage says he has forgotten who he is, but it goes deeper than that. Insofar as we are our values, our view of the good, Derek has forgotten the difference between good and bad. He has lost not just himself, but his way. In the span of just a few minutes, Cage is able to remind Derek of the importance of the good. It is breathtaking to watch Derek's confidence melt away as he remembers how far he has strayed from his values to have a restaurant that is considered cool and popular. Derek has become one of the most successful chefs in the city, but he is a miserable person, living values that are not his own, living a life that is not his own. He runs the restaurant, but he is nonetheless living a life totally dominated by the market, a life marred by alienation of the most intense kind. I have never seen a film capture this so effectively. I cannot adequately describe its beauty in words. The other two meetings with Edgar and Darius are impressive, though they do not reach quite the same height. In both, Pig subverts an audience expectation that Cage will use violence to find the pig. In all three meetings, Cage uses Satyagraha, the force of the truth. He takes a beating not just to show Edgar how much the pig means to him, but to remind Edgar that he is still a human being. He makes the meal for Darius to force Darius to confront his repressed values. Darius has retreated into instrumental rationality as a way of coping with loss. He has turned even his relationship with his son into a brutal competition for survival. The meal drags Darius out of his moral abyss. The scene with Derek makes all of this explicit, putting it all into plain language. Cage confronts Derek with the truth, and the force of the truth compels Derek to help him. This is not to say that Cage's character simply knows what's true, what's good. 
In many ways, Cage and Darius are mirrors for one another. Both have responded to loss by retreating, by severing some part of themselves. Darius has retreated into instrumental reason, while Cage has retreated into substantive reason. Darius has retreated into the material, while Cage has retreated into the spiritual. But before Cage lost his wife, he had a way of sharing his vision of the good with the people of Portland. He became a legendary chef because he was a virtuous craftsman, because he shared his vision of the good with the city through the medium of cooking. His way of cooking was beyond popular, beyond cool. It was itself a way of showing people the meaning of beauty, of the good. Edgar's complaint, then, is a legitimate one. Cage responded to his wife's demise by abandoning the city. Why should the city help him when he walked out on it, depriving it of his view of the good, allowing it to become the kind of place where men like Derek are forced to run vacuous, trendy restaurants? In just a few short scenes, Cage was able to reach men who, for years, have fallen away from the good. What if he came back? What if he started again? Who else might he be able to help? It might be argued that Cage could only become this wise by leaving, that the good can only be seen from the forest. But even if this were so, what good is wisdom if it cannot be shared? The good man shares as much wisdom as he can, even if by doing so he obtains less. Wisdom is tied to prudence, to practical ethics, and therefore it is of little use if it is not acted upon in the social world. Wisdom shows itself through action. Aristotle makes the argument that we must shift back and forth between periods of action and periods of contemplation. Through contemplation, we gain wisdom, and through action, we share it. But when we are sharing, we are often not gaining, and when we are gaining, we are often not sharing. To really share his wisdom with Portland, Cage would have to start a new restaurant. He'd have to hire new people. He'd have to engage with this imperfect city and make all sorts of concessions to it. The vision of the good he would communicate would be mediated by the need to make it socially acceptable, and through this it would be distorted. But no vision of the good is ever perfect in the first instance, for we are mortals, not gods, and our contemplation is always marred by our subjectivity, our limited perspective. It is, then, not in itself an objection to say that there is distortion, for there is always distortion. What is needed is a productive dialogue between the good and the political. It does not eliminate the gap between the two, but it works within that gap. It enables us to fail better and more beautifully, to reach for that which is eternal, for what Plato called the good. Pig is not a perfect film, but it is the best film I have seen. Nice. <laughs> um, I was just thinking about uh, just what you were just saying, Benjamin, and I was saying about the sports person discovering that life is inherently, I used to think I used the word un unfair, but the, without the unfairness, the world, wouldn't, the world wouldn't exist. But that isn't to say that, that, you know, this sort of like, you get that sort of castigatory parent who's like, oh, life's unfair, that you should just get on with it, or that capitalism is unfair, some people haven't, some people don't. Well, the, to, to state that life is inherently contradictory is not to say that capitalism is a good system. We need to work out ways to knowing that if we actually genuinely understand that life is unfair and that we were in this world once, work to create systems that take into consideration that unfairness in actually reasonable ways. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that there's a tendency to want to 
agree totally with the with Cage's character's perspective. But mm. I think part of the point the film is making is that Cage's retreat was also not the exactly. best yeah. thing that could have happened. Absolutely. You have to still tell this is and I think we were just talking before we press record about desire. Lacan says, don't give way in terms of your desire, which can be read both as don't give up on your desire. Um but also don't yield to, so I always think of it as like a crossroad, you know, like you're on a street and the word yield. Yield in one sense can be give yourself over to it. And yield can also be like, give way to the other car. So don't give way to it. Don't let it pass you by, but also don't give yourself over to it all the way. So you're in this thing where you have to go after what you want, knowing that your desires are imperfect in themselves and will never have a perfect result. That which you desire won't fulfill you. And it is born of lack. But the idea that you can just be some quietist and and retreat from the world also doesn't work. You, know, you sort of go after it, believing that, you know, I'm going to win a gold medal and that gold medal will tr- cure all my ills. Doesn't work. But also like, well, I know it's not going to work, so I'm not even going to try. Doesn't work either, you know. And we have to sort of tarry with this contradiction and really living exists in this place in between where we, we um, sort of give ourselves over to our desires, knowing that there's no absolute. I wonder about this sort of city and the, the you know, the contemplation. I take that point very well. And I, and I, you know, whether we're talking about religious retreats or 40 days um, or, you know, the, the withdrawal, the temporary withdrawal, the, the retreat, you know, there are many, many words for it. And, um, you know, it's always this kind of antagonism between what it takes to actually preserve those spaces for certain people. You know, I'm totally obsessed with this because I always think about the philosophers, what it actually takes to preserve space for people to not be in mortal danger, to not have to work all the time, you know, to actually have this 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 freedom, if you like, but it's freedom from those external pressures and, and the threat of violence that actually depends upon a whole series of things. And, and obviously the Greeks have these different models, right? So some of them go to the garden, some, some of them go outside the city. Diogenes lives in the city, off the city, in a, in a, in like a dog. You know, some of them like a, are in the Lyceum or in the Academy or, you know, so you, you have all these different sites where philosophy take, or p- takes place or, and, and, you know, we can, we can rethink that. Like where is philosophy allowed to happen or where does it happen? And, and I'm not, I don't want to kind of um, confuse philosophizing with contemplation or religious um, uh, retreat. They're, they're slightly different things, but in, in a way, the problem I'm always obsessed with is, is the same one, which is um, what are the, the systems or structures that are in place to preserve those spaces? Um, and it's obvious from this film that that even that retreat is not safe. You know that even the the, the one thing that you you have that that ostensibly isn't even useful to you will can and will be taken away from you. So there is no pure. You know, violence is is not only covered up in the city, but it reemerges everywhere. You know, it's it's you're never exempt, and actually would be quite frightening probably to live on your own in in the forest. I mean, it would take a while to get used to it. I think you know. Um, as a, as a, as an act of, of withdrawal, and yeah, I I suppose I don't know. I mean, I wondered about the final tape message. Actually, I again I find it confusing. I I think perhaps I I missed some crucial aspects of this film because, I mean, Benjamin, you're you're right to say that the the dinner obviously because he says he recalls every dinner, so he remakes the dinner for the um, you know, for the for the Darius. 
and, and triggering this, this, you know, involuntary and upsetting kind of remembrance of who he was and, and what he once cared about. And, but on the message on the tape at the end, which is, which is obviously Cage's wife who's passed away, then she's also talking about going to a restaurant. And I got completely confused about this. And I thought maybe, I don't know, it was, he was, she was talking about the same meal, but I think, I think probably I was just being tired and, and ridiculous. And it was just me being confused. But what did you make of the final message? Why was it this sort of message at the end? This is a very banal and petty point. It's it's me not being able to understand the film properly, to be honest. I know it, it definitely did require. I uh, I think I you know as you do when you're watching on your own, something happens, you walk off, and you come back, and you don't pay attention. You know, you take a second to sort of get back into it. It definitely did demand narratively that you were listening all the time. Well, it's it's I'm on fire, right? By Springsteen. Yeah. You look at the lyrics. That's what gets sung at the end. But she talks about going to a restaurant and she says, I know how much you'll hate it and only to get drunk in order to cope with it or something like that. And I I was just really confused because presumably it's a she's talking to Robin, Rob, about them going out later in that evening before she plays him a song. Anyway, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. It's, it's like absolutely irrelevant. <laughs> I did look this up the other day, actually, but I can't remember. But I think I had the same thought as you. Mm. So I did look it up, but I'm trying to look now on my phone where I looked it up. And um, I can't find it. Yeah, I'm not sure if I have a, a fully developed view of what the clip at the end means. I think his willingness to listen to it is significant. I'm not sure it matters as much what gets said. Yeah. And I feel like the Springsteen song is picked because the thing about Springsteen is that lots of people like that. No, I think you're right. I mean, I think the the, the point is that the tape he couldn't listen to before is is that, you know he's able to listen to it. Yeah, I mean that's that's obviously the right. point. Like, what can be on the tape that can live up to the hype of him <laughs> not being willing to listen to the tape? Nothing really. No, of course, and of course, it's the you know the the fact of his dead wife, dead wife's mm-hmm. voice, and you know, and in a way, like it's a transference issue again. It's like he's he's gone through all these things in order to be able to be the kind of person who's able to listen to this you know, haunting and, and you know, un- unbearably upsetting thing, I suppose. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, it is a very, it is a very poignant film. I mean, there's absolutely no doubt about it. And it is, Nicolas Cage is, is a very interesting person to play this, this role because he does have this kind of, like quasi saint like status and I hadn't quite made the link with the whole violence thing you know that the expectation would be that he would be violent and of course because that's what he normally does in the films including in Mandy actually although that's Mm -hmm. maybe a more interesting film in other ways um but yeah like this kind of gigantic lumbering person and there's always that strange thing with Nicolas Cage although less so in this film because he's so kind of covered up I suppose but you always think that's Nicolas Cage you know yeah like he can never get away from being Nicolas Cage, even though he he presumably works harder than like anyone else in Hollywood. He seems to be in about fifty films a year or something. Like what, what, yeah, drives, what drives Nicolas Cage? Did you know that he's a he's a cousin of uh, Francis Ford Coppola? He's actually his real surname's Coppola, 
So he is a, he he changed his name for so it's not because this is the thing. I mean, like also you're talking about transference, or whatever, and like the sort of the worlds that a figure conveys. And so obviously, if you have your name Coppola, it would convey a whole universe um, that maybe you don't want to convey. <laughs> you're sort of like the image that you're creating with this this word cage, which obviously mm. sort of sounds quite kind of like a, a violent kind of name. I don't know. Um, I mean, he's yeah. he's not that big. He's he's listed at just six feet tall, six foot zero. Okay, Which a lot of actors are quite right? small, so but he's quite so he's, big not, he's not huge. <laughs> I think that part of it is is that they they do want to portray him in this film as someone who might potentially be violent or menacing. So it's shot in a way which enlarges his size, mm-hmm. and a lot of the people who've been put around him in the film are much smaller than him. Mm. To give him this sense of, yeah. of immenseness. Yeah. Yeah, and it's obviously, I, as I said, I don't think it's intentional. I did read an interview with the director that that it is, you know, so we, we invest in it as a thriller genre, but they do use loads of tropes, as you say, like this, the person of size, <laughs> the the way it's shot, the fact that he does convey a certain, like we, uh, we, it brings with with himself certain expectations on the part of the audience. Um, well, when he writes his name on the Fight Club wall, you know, in huge lettering, and everyone is amazed that he's there, you don't know yet that the reason they're amazed is that he went away for 15 years. You think the reason they're amazed is that he's some kind of legendary fighter and that he's going to kick everybody's butt and win the whole tournament. And I, I thought that was a great misdirect. Yeah. No, I do like this misdirection um, technique, and I think it is very much. You know, the way that humans invest in things at Binley, we believe that there's going to be something that there never is. Um, so this misdirection, you know, we and, and in a way, this is I think I've used the term remembering, forgetting, remembering, forgetting. We have to forget the insight in order to engage in life. And then our desire is always endlessly undercut. But if on a sort of outside of this sort of unconscious drive level, we can we can think of it in reason like we can use reason to understand that this is the nature of desire, then we can come up with systems potentially that are less harmful and that torture us because uh, we continue to believe. Hmm. On Nina's point earlier about the difference between philosophy and contemplation, I think one of the one of the things that isn't really accounted for in Aristotle's contemplation action distinction mm-hmm is the role of dialogue. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a good point, especially because it's so important before Aristotle, you know, as an explicit method, you know, to reduce it to that. But, you know, that this is in a way what philosophy is. It's it's the dialogue. And uh, I mean, I suppose you have it in the the idea of the the friendship of the good, I suppose, you know, must be constituted by dialogue to some extent. you know, as the frame within which philosophical speculation is possible, um, where you're not worried that because you're being used or you're using your friend or you're simply friends out of enjoyment that the other person will will desert you, you know, because you're both engaged in a higher project um, with each other um, in relation to the good. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I think it's I I think I'm still too kind of um, dichotomous in this kind of city, country, or 
city nature or civilization nature divide, I think, which is why I found the Kaczynski more appealing than either of you did, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but I think the further point that, I mean, the more complicated point that Benjamin was making about the relationship between the good and the political, like that you can't simply know what the good is unless you, you know, unless it has this pragma aspect, you know, that it's, it's not enough to just sit and be wise in a, on top of a mountain or in a cave or in a hut and go, well, I've worked it all out great. You know, exactly. that there's something kind of distinctly, you know, even selfish about that, that the, the very act of withdrawal, even if it might be required at times, is ultimately, you know, not on the side of the good because it's not pro-social or that it's not, you know, a return um, to the... Uh, the dynamism that everyone else has to experience, I suppose. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah. And this is something I like about Plato. And I think it's something Plato has over Aristotle, because with Aristotle, you've already got a distinction erected between contemplation and action. And yes, you have a need for both and you have an oscillation between the two. But those things have been split off. Whereas for Plato, because philosophy occurs through dialogue, philosophy is much more inherently embedded in the political than I think it even is for Aristotle, for whom it's quite embedded, relative to later Greek philosophers like the Stoics and the Epicureans, for whom you can do philosophy outside of a political context altogether. So I, I think that we can kind of view Plato as, as having these things really totally embedded, and then gradually over the course of antiquity, that embeddedness breaks apart. You know, um, last week on the B-side, we were talking about anarchism in a way. And I think I said that I think that anarchists are religious, which is maybe a bit of a, a leap. But what I it just, I think this does relate to this in terms of the quietest and the anarchist is sort of like this weird quietest figure in that there is a, a belief. So the anarchist is like, you, you know, you don't get rid of systems because actually within this sort of anarchy, things come out as a sort of like, and it's an over, you know, investment or trying to um, try to rearrange things in bad ways that bad things happen. But to believe that is to believe that there exists cosmic balance in the same way that the quietest is like, oh God, the, the arguments are just raging and it's ridiculous. And these people are just fighting to the death and I'm just going to stand away because no, it's as if you know that, yes, whilst going to war, or whatever, is not, is not good or arguments aren't always can be bad or whatever but often you know things things generate something new you know a, a conversation or a heated discussion can we can come to some kind of clarity sometimes but it's like this withdrawal almost speaks to a belief that there is this essence this cosmic balance essence that you know these people you know that, that there is something other than this argument that people are engaging in like some some sort of placid place that they just have to you know that Beyond their argument, there is an essence of cosmic balance. I don't know if I'm making sense. But you see it in a lot of state of nature arguments, you know, a kind of Rousseauian account where there was some kind of balanced situation and then it was disrupted by the emergence of the social. That kind of argument requires a kind of pre-social condition or pre-political condition. Yeah. You have to be able to posit there as having been some time that was before politics so that you can speak of a kind of pre-political human nature yeah. that can then be corrupted in some way by the political. And I think the problem with that view is that fundamentally people have always been in politics. Yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, that's the Aristotelian point in a way. It's like the zoo on politicon. It's like we are political animals. You know, I mean, to say that to be social or political is unnatural or to, it, you know, just doesn't make sense. I mean, that's just not what human, human beings are. Like, mm-hmm. it is our nature to be social and to be political. And- and it's like this, this almost speaks to this sort of thing that like there's a Garden of Eden and that the fall is politics. But, you know, the Garden of Eden is a metaphor. It's like in order to be speaking subjects, we have already fallen. And I think we've I've talked about this before, that as speaking subjects, we are only speaking so, subjects insofar as we live in community and language exists before us. And we enter into language through this sort of cut, butting up against others and their their contradictions and having separated from another. You know, so so. Yeah, there, there is no Garden of Eden. And this is what I mean, like, so the, the religious thing, it's like, if there's a wholeness and completeness, a cosmic balance, well, who put it there? You know. Yeah, then you have theorists like Hume who situate us in a kind of in-between space in which for Hume, we have always been in small communities or tribes, but the thing that is kind of disruptive is trying to scale that up to the point at which it's a large society and we don't know everybody in it by name. And so that tribe versus society, I, I think that's a more interesting thing to play with than individual yeah. versus social. Mm-hmm. And it's also interesting, you know, just saying about the um, the sort of state of nature that has become corrupted, obviously, and, you know, the, this anarchism that there there is a, a cosmic balance that we can get to beyond antagonism through so it's sort of you can get to a beyond antagonism through antagonism maybe because you're sort of taking away stru- I, I don't really know but you're taking away structures as an anarchist and things sort of work that work their way some things out um but yeah it's a very conservative position because it's like saying that there is something that has been corrupted that we can get back to by enacting certain i mean so obviously libertarianism is similar all the same thing, essentially. Yeah, a lot of that is caught up in, in 18th century political theory tropes. And there have been 200 years of political theory after that. And I think that a lot of those discussions that get kind of hooked on what is the essential nature and is society the fulfillment of that or an obstruction to it, uh, you know, by the time you move into the 19th century, Political theory largely moved beyond that discussion and into a discussion of value fragmentation, the consequences of value fragmentation, and therefore the impossibility of putting back together a set of people who get together on the basis that they agree about human nature or they agree about value. On the other hand, I would say like the the kind of fetish for the city or the metropole or the idea Mm -hmm. that in a way we, we are... There is only industrial society. There is only like a certain kind of technological regime is also inhibiting. Like is also a kind of mistake. I think. It, I mean, it also excludes and 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 leftism historically often has a problem with peasantry or people who <laughs> live and work in the countryside. Um, you know, if you're if you if you're vulgarly obsessed with a particular image of the proletariat as uh, you know, the group of people who have, in a way, lost land and through enclosures or, you know, and now forced to, to sell their labor power in return for a wage, you know, then the industrial proletariat as your, you know, your your subject of history. Um, and, and, and if you go down the line of, in a, in a way, thinking that, 
well, in a sense, industrial society is all there is and all you can do is kind of repoliticize it one way or another, yeah. I suppose. Um, I think there's also a trap. Exactly. And the thing is to think that, that, that it is all that there is, is to think that there's some kind of um, essence in that, you know, just as that we can say that somebody who's looking at cosmic, the cosmic balance of nature is doing the same thing. So, yeah, and I think there's a, there is a real problem of, um, of, of, cert, of this sort of absolute certainty, either like, you know, when, when you can project, as again, Hegel, <laughs> Owl of Minerva, et cetera, that you can just imagine what the world should look like, or it is as it is because, it, you know, and there's no alternative, which I think capitalism, obviously capitalism, realism and everything, but also that like, we can project this alternative, which will absolutely be like that. Like, I think we don't really know, but I think, yeah, what's for sure is that we can imagine and also we can be certain that it is not certain that <laughs> maternity is all there is, you know. Well, yeah, I think that the main thing that we ought to learn about all of this is that politics is the thing that never goes away. And the particular form that politics takes has varied greatly over time and will vary greatly going forward. Uh, you know, and, and even proponents of thinking about uh, industrialization got into these kind of stadial theories of, of history, where there are stages, or they got into these kind of Whig progress narratives, thinking that we were going from one place to another. Part of starting to think about industrialization was starting to think about it as something separate and distinct from what had come before, and therefore potentially separate and distinct from what might come after. And I think a lot of more recent theory tends to fetishize the particular structure that we have, a particular kind of industrial consensus, post-war consensus, neoliberal consensus, as being the only way that we can build societies. It, it is often difficult to see how you would get from one thing to the next thing, but that doesn't mean there will be no next thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously, if you play a lot of Civ Five, like you know what comes <laughs> after. <laughs> I feel like I have to play this so that I know what you're talking about. Well, Civ Five is is uh, extraordinarily Whiggish. It is. If you, if you, yeah, I think part of what gets part, part of what makes Civ Five work as a game, but also part of what makes it not work as a representation of real human affairs, is that it's completely and totally Whiggish. It feels like it comes out of the French Revolution. Yeah. And I think this idea of like the fut a future tech is like an attempt to deal with singularity, the singularity, you know, it's like you keep building the same thing that's like called this mysterious thing and you don't know what it is. And it, you know, but yeah, I mean, it all tends towards this kind of space race type sciencey thing. Like you, there's no, there's no option to go back to, to, well, you can nuke everything actually. One of the saddest days of my life is when my friend Daniel nuked Cardiff when I was playing Boudicca, it was awful. We actually had to sit there oh. for like a couple of hours going, what have we done? Um, well, what has he done? <laughs> um, anyway, um, <laughs> don't you, Cardiff? Um, but there's no option if you like to go backwards in SIF. That's the interesting thing. You can't kind of de-industrialize. Yeah, you can't de-industrialize. <laughs> and games that have come along that have tried to fiddle with this, like Humankind is a game that recently came out in the same file in the civilization. And they've tried to fiddle with this. So they say, oh, you can play as all these different cultures. Every era, you can adapt a completely different culture. 
And so each era you change who you're playing as. And the so in contrast to civilization where you pick one civilization, oh, yeah. which has certain essential traits, which are there at the beginning of the game and are with you all the way throughout the game, you will now hop from culture to culture in a kind of haphazard, just whatever you want God, sort of way. cultural appropriation much. <laughs> well, I think that the kind of interesting thing about that is where civilization is in a, a kind of excessively modernist game, humankind tries to correct for this. But it's still married to the idea of the technological eras and a unidirectional mm. technological progress. So the cultures can change, but the cultures are all associated with specific eras of technological development. Yeah. So it's committed to the Whig progress narrative on the tech, but then it tries to break up the essentializing cultural yeah. frame of we, reference. We need that a Civ has. Kaczynski inspired anti Civ 5. <laughs> You know, we start at the end and go backwards. It'd be really good. There was a game, I think, that Kate that was made an educational game in the states a few years ago about Thoreau. It was like you, you are Thoreau, whatever. You do it, yeah. <laughs> you send, an update. Do you send your laundry home to your mother to be washed while you pursue intellectual matters in the forest? Yes or no? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I find that so funny. I do. I do find it funny how, like, at the end of the day, all we are human human animals who have to wash their dirty underwear. You know? I know. I'm you really be behind. Pursue your intellectual. Oh yeah. Whatever. Yeah, so it's one of these things as well. It's like it's like cooking. I used to love cooking as a teenager. I was so obsessed, yeah. and now I'm just like, oh, this again. She I... wants to eat again. I thought I did the eating. The eating's done. Now I have to do it again. I made some fudge the other day, and I don't nice. know whether to be impressed or appalled. You impressed? Know. No, it's a health food, Nina. It's a health food. Well, I, I genuinely the... believe. I, yeah, it's health food. No, but but it's like what what kind of person makes fudge? <laughs> You know, I mean, honestly. I'm... My favourite person, Tammy Faye Baker, made fudge all the time. Well, so. I think the question is, are you identifying with making the fudge as a core constituent of your identity? Are you participating in fudge groups? <laughs> no. Are you a fudge packer? Oh, for God's sake, you just wanted to excuse to say that. Um, <laughs> Did you actually say oh, God. No. No, but I realise all, all my holes have clothes in. I think I have a moth problem. Oh, um, your whole, holes have clothes in? What? <laughs> you said all your holes have clothes in. No, I didn't. Did I? Yes, you did. Yes, yes. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> well, my, my wardrobe is lax then, you know. But I mean, but I, I, I always get holy clothes and I'm like, shit, I have to. I'm not very good at like the, t- do, doing them up, what you're supposed to do, stitch them up. Sometimes Dar- I do. Darning. And I just like, shit, darn. <laughs> No, I don't know. I mean, like- yeah, one of the points that Raymond Guest makes about uh, aesthetics is that in the modern period and into the postmodern period, there's this idea that you have to do something that's original, that's never been done before. You can't do a very good, nice version of something that has been made traditionally. You can't just make a, a hyper-functional, hyper-beautiful version mm-hmm. of something which has been traditionally done. You have to do something that's never been done. And the emphasis in modernity on doing something that's never been done leads into deconstructive approaches, in part because you exhaust the possibility of doing things that have never been done without breaking fully out of the format itself. Yeah. Right? So 
in Pig, part of what makes the trendy restaurant trendy is that it has gone into the realm of deconstructive dishes so that it can continue to be original. And so it has sacrificed everything at the altar of originality. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And then what these foodies are committed to now that the contemporary foodie, rather than being committed to uh, enjoying an extremely well done version of, say, a filet mignon, the contemporary foodie is interested in uh, in having an experience that's never been had before. And the fundamental difference between those two approaches to appreciating a particular art or craft you know, one is just a hunt for for distinctiveness and for being able to say I as an individual am part of something that is distinctive that other people don't have access to. And instead, I'm participating in a tradition which is everybody's and we're just doing it as well as it can be done. And um, I just want to add on to that in terms of the film itself and the filmmaking and the narrative is that these filmmakers used the craft in order to have an insight that you wouldn't otherwise have without the, the riven craft. And so... Whilst I appreciate experimental film and have made experimental film myself, I think that the technology of film does something that just by breaking it down, because often we also break things down, not understanding what we're breaking down, thinking that we're breaking down something in some kind of emancipatory way. But I think the emancipation is in the form, but anyway. Yeah, sometimes doing something great with narrative is more interesting than just finding another way to deviate from narrative. All right, we'll wrap up there. We're going to go do our B-side episode for our Patreon listeners. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye.